Coming back then to the book of First Peter, we left off before we went to our psalm series for the holiday season in First Peter chapter 2, and we're in just a couple verses this morning, verses 11 through 12, as Peter is transitioning now from the doctrinal section of his book into the more practical of of how as believers we live our lives in the light of the gospel. So 2 Peter 2, verses 11 through 12. This is the word of the Lord, beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would attend the proclamation of your word by your spirit, that you would move in our hearts to encourage us, build us up, strengthen us in our faith as your people, and show us how we might glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most people don't like to be different. There's probably some exceptions, especially when you're in middle school or high school, you know, you you do those things to draw attention. But most people don't like to be different. They like to fit in. They, They like to be like others, to be part of a community. And feeling like you don't belong to those around you is is awkward at best. And certainly being an outcast cast out of society or shunned or mocked is, is not something anybody desires. It's not something anyone seeks. And yet history, as we know, of this world is marked by discrimination, sometimes escalating to, to violent, horrible levels. A powerful yet sad proof of the fallen nature of humanity is that we often as humans do not treat other people with the honor and the respect that we should afford them as fellow image bearers, bearers of God's own image. And we see that even going back to the very first murder where Cain kills his brother Abel in a fit of jealous discrimination against him. Abel was different because he was accepted by God. He did what God asked. He believed in God's promises. And yet Cain could not tolerate the fact that that was the case. And so he lashed out in uncontrolled anger and killed his own brother. Peter's original readers We're facing that kind of discrimination. They were different. They didn't fit into the society around them. And that society, that culture, was beginning to become increasingly hostile to those believers residing in this region, which is now modern-day Turkey. They were feeling the heat of an ever-growing fire set against them because of who they were. Peter sent then this divinely inspired letter to them to encourage them, to to strengthen them for the fiery trial. 
And he began, as we saw, by reminding them of their living hope. They have a hope that is unlike all other hopes. It it does not fade because it is grounded in the living Son of God. He calls that hope, of course, an an unfading inheritance, a, a salvation which will finally be realized if they remain faithful to Christ. And as recipients of this living hope, believers then have a new identity. And he explains that and part of chapter 1 and going into chapter 2, that if you are a follower of Christ by grace through faith, you are holy. You are consecrated, set apart to God. You are His people, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own treasured possession. And thus you proclaim His goodness, His excellencies, His mercy, grace, and saving power through what He has given you. And so we come now then into our text this morning after all of that, and Peter begins to show us how as God's people, we are different, and because we are different, how we are to live before the world. We're different because of who we are. We are different, and thus we live in a different manner that is not like those who are not part of God's kingdom. And so the first thing we see is that if you are part of God's kingdom, you are different because you are loved by God. In other words, you're different because God in His grace chose you to be so. You are different because you have received His grace and mercy. Beginning in verse 11, Peter starts technically what we call the perinesis of his letter. And that's just a fancy term to make you sound smart. Um, It's just a fancy way of saying the exhortation or the exhortive part of his letter. The part where he's going to now give instructions, directives for Christians and how they are to respond to those who are being hostile towards them, who are discriminating against them for their faith. Now, something to point out that's helpful when reading all the letters of the New Testament, either of Peter or Paul or James or uh, any of the letters, is that they follow a similar structure. They usually start with that, that doctrinal section with the gospel, and they explain and they unpack the beauty of God's grace, the benefits of His mercy to those who trust Him by faith alone, and and then they follow that then with this perinesis, this, this exhortation that exhorts believers then to consider the ethics and the behavior and the lifestyle that their faith in the gospel puts upon them. And there's a good reason for this. You see, the gospel is the very basis of how we are to live our lives as Christians. It is part of our being, who we are exhortations to live in a way that glorifies God are grounded in the redemptive work of Christ for us because our works could never redeem ourselves. They're there. They're a call to glorify God. But our salvation rests in Christ alone. We do not make ourselves God's people, but are made God's people by His grace. And it is only then after we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ are we able to act in a way that is righteous and acceptable to God. And that is what Peter means when he says to his readers, Beloved. 
Now, there is a certain pastoral kindness that comes through in his words. Because after all, he is speaking to people that are facing some very difficult situations uh, with the, the persecution and the discrimination that was turning against them. And he's about to lay out to them some imperatives of how they are to respond to this unbelieving world that is causing so much suffering and harm to God's people. And so as he calls them beloved, he's once again reminding them who they are. They are beloved by God Almighty. Just because they are not loved by the society around them does not mean they are not loved by God. They are His children, chosen by Him, adopted into His family. We see this same term for beloved in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to Isaac in Genesis 22, where he is called uh, uh, Abraham's beloved son. So there's this familial note to this word. It's speaking of relationship, of belonging to a family. God has made believers to be part of His covenant family, members of His covenant of grace. And Peter is recognizing that with this little word and calling them beloved. The psalmist in Psalm 60 describes God's people as the beloved ones who are delivered and given salvation by God's own right hand. And it is precisely that love of God which chose you and made you His own. And that is what makes you different. It's because you are loved by God. That is what makes you a sojourner or exile as Peter says here in verse 11. And we've seen him use that language before, way back in chapter 1. And it's kind of a theme that develops through his whole letter here, that you are exiles, foreigners, strangers, sojourners. We who are God's people are His because He has chosen us to be His people, which means we do not then belong to this present world anymore even though we reside here. We're in two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ, which is our real identity, our real nationality. And so our exileship then is an indication that we are the recipients of God's sovereign grace. And that's always been the case for God's people. You can go back to the Old Testament and you see when God calls Abraham, He calls him out of a pagan country to go to a foreign land and to sojourn there. And, and all through Abraham's life, he was considered a sojourner, someone that was traveling who did not belong in this world. For example, when he was requesting a burial plot for his wife, Sarah, he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me the property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. This very same idea or theme of God choosing people and thus they are now displaced foreigners comes up again in Hebrews 11. And we see there in what is often called this, this hall of faith 
that from Abel to Abraham, Noah to Isaac and Jacob, God called His people. They are His beloved. And for that, they are sojourners. They are seeking for a homeland because they resided in a land that was not their own. They were looking, as the author of Hebrews says, for that city not made with human hands, but whose designer and maker and builder was God. They were citizens of a different kingdom, and that made them strangers then in, in the kingdoms of this earth, wherever they are. They were foreigners living in one country, but belonging to another. And the point of Hebrews 11 is that all believers, including us today, are like this. Yes, we live in the United States, we live in Michigan, we live in Ann Arbor. We're thankful for that. But we recognize that we belong to a different country, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes us different. We who are Christ's people are different because we are God's beloved. And we're not alone. As we see in Hebrews 11, we are in this long line, this long tradition stretching back to the beginning of history that all God's people are sojourners in this world. And that brings us then to the second thing we see Peter instructing us here. After reminding us that we are different because we are loved by God, he says then that we are different or because we are different, we will have different desires and a different code of honor than the unbelieving world. There are two commands that Peter gives his readers which flow from the spiritual reality that God's people are distinct because they are His people. And the first comes as a negative. I urge you, says Peter, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the, the passions of the flesh. And the second stated in the positive, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So don't do something, abstain from the passions of the flesh, but do something, keep your conduct, your lifestyle, the way you walk among the Gentiles honorable. And both of these mean to show that because Christians are a different people, we have a different way of thinking about the world and its problems. We have a different way of living in the world. We have different thoughts, different values, different purposes for living. And sometimes those differences do come into conflict with the culture and society in which we are sojourning as exiles. However, Peter doesn't call us here to rebellion against society, nor a withdrawal from it. Rather, both of these exhortations point us in a different direction, one that loves our neighbor and glorifies God. First, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Passions are, of course, desires. It's the things we crave, the things we want. Now, we can desire good things or we can desire bad things, evil things, sinful things. The gospel isn't a call to a stoic life devoid of passion. In fact, we are supposed to have passions for those things that which glorify God. We worship Him out of passion. The key word here, though, is flesh. Abstain from the passions or the desires of the flesh. So what does he mean then? 
when he speaks of the flesh. Well, in the New Testament, flesh, and you see that word fairly often, it's metaphorical and theological. It, it pertains to that which is typical or common of the human nature apart from the work of God. In other words, passions of the flesh are those desires of the unregenerate human heart, a heart devoid of God's redeeming grace and absent of His Holy Spirit. Many times the desires of the flesh are thought of in terms of uh, sinful sexual desires. And certainly those would be included. But it goes far beyond that. You see, at its root, the idea here is that any human impulse, any desire of the heart that runs contrary to God's law and is designed for people is a desire or a passion of the flesh. So passions of the flesh then are are unjust anger and bitterness and hatred and jealousy and covetousness and lust and selfishness and any other dark desire of the heart that when manifested results in sinful actions ranging from violence to abuse, murder, immorality, lying, robbery, slander, and others. And so no wonder then Peter says these passions, these desires of the flesh, they wage war against your soul. And the point is to say they are destructive. They take no prisoners. They destroy. They pillage. They crush a person and the others they affect. And these very passions themselves are sinful. There's the sinful desires of the heart apart from the work of Christ. And we know that the end of sin, as Paul says in Romans 6, is death. Not just physical death, of course, but spiritual death, separation from God forever. Now, putting this loving exhortation then into the context of Peter's first readers, we get, begin to get a picture then why this abstaining from these desires is so vital for the believer when responding to a hostile culture. Because when people are discriminated against, as was happening to these Christians in ancient Turkey, what's the normal response of the human heart? What's the first thing the heart wants to go to? Well, usually it's to respond with more anger. Apart from the work of God's grace, the response is usually to respond to hatred with more hatred. Anger with anger. Violence with more violence. Another response is sometimes to simply try to blend in. To abandon who we are and become like those around us in an effort to appease them. Remove the offense and suddenly you're you're part of a group that is acceptable. But as Christians, the thing that makes us so intolerable to the unbelieving world is the very thing who makes us who we are. It is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot abandon that. We wouldn't be God's people if we did. But unfortunately, the history of 
God's people is one that is marred by the stain of efforts to become like those of the surrounding culture by ignoring or, or suppressing the truth of God's holy word. You go back into the Old Testament, now how many times did Israel uh, give up that which made them distinctive to worship the gods of their neighbors in the cultures around them in order to fit in, to blend in? And the end of that we saw in the Bible is ruin, it is destruction. And in our modern era, the church has at so many times caved to societal pressures to accept practices and behaviors and customs and ideas that are not in accordance to God's revealed will for humanity, all to fit in, all to blend in. Peter's exhortation here is so different. He says, don't give in to those unrestricted passions. Don't be like those Gentiles, which he means pagans. Do not give in to what is so normal to the human heart. Don't respond to the anger directed towards you with more anger. Instead, follow a different desire. Follow the desire of the new heart that God has given you through Christ when you came to Him in faith and repentance. The only way a person can do that is if they are God's beloved. Because it is through faith in Christ that we put our sin to death. We cannot do it in our own power. We must look to Jesus and rely on the promises of God who gives us His Spirit to overcome those passions of the flesh. And so Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape. And that way of escape is Christ that you may be able to endure it. And then he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This brings us to Peter's second exhortation, live honorable lives before the Gentiles. You know, every society has an honor code, things that are honorable and things that are dishonorable. These are those actions, these way of life that are valued and considered praiseworthy or shameful. Again, it's helpful to look back into the time when Peter originally wrote this. And so we ask, what then was this system of honor and shame in which Peter's original readers lived? In honor in Asia Minor of the first century Roman world in which Peter's original audience lived, honor was very much a public matter. Worth was determined by what others publicly thought of you. Socially, you had to be acknowledged as being praiseworthy or honorable. Otherwise, you weren't. And this public acknowledgement could be achieved in different ways. The primary one was to gain honor by being granted it by somebody who was in a position of power or authority. And you could get this recognition through things like athletic achievements, financial means, um, or military might even, or simply having the right friends in the right places, having some high-ranking official who happens to like you. 
We also know that Roman cities would also try to be honorable and outdo one another and how devoted they were to the pantheon of their gods and the power of the empire and later the emperor himself. And Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, he he describes cities in Asia in the very region where Peter was writing to these believers who would go all out and trying to impress the emperor in Rome and gain his favor so that they would be considered honorable citizens of Rome. So with that in mind, we come back to Peter's exhortation. And he tells his readers to keep their conduct, their way of life before the Gentiles, meaning unbelieving pagans, honorable. This is a call then not to live in seclusion, not to hide away when the persecution comes, when they're feeling the heat of that discriminating hostility against them, but to publicly honor God as King by the things they do and say before their neighbors. And through the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he's going to give some specific instructions and circumstances where that honorable uh, that, that, that honor was to shine forth. And we'll look at them in more detail, of course, in the weeks to come. But for now, just notice the scope of Peter's instructions here. If you go to verses 13 and 17, we see that he's talking about living honorably in the civil arena. In verses 18 through 25, he deals with honor between servants and masters, the socioeconomic life. In, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Peter gives instructions regarding honor in the home. And in verses 8 and 12 of chapter 3, he summarizes all of this by calling for unity within the church, manifested in love to one another, and a desire to be a blessing to the unbelieving world. And all of this, again, is not private. It is very public, and it is very open. This isn't a call to resist the hostile society that was discriminating against them, nor was it a call to blend in and become like them through compromise. Rather, they were to live in such a way to honor God by obeying His Word in every aspect of their lives through the power of the Spirit. Notice, too, that this exhortation to be honorable in the conduct of life follows that to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And it has to be that way. Because when we abstain from those desires of the flesh by bringing them to the cross where Christ deals with them for us, it is only when we have done that that it will affect the way that we live so that we might conduct ourselves with honor before the unbelieving world. That is exactly what Jesus talked about throughout His ministry of needing to have the heart purified by the grace of the Gospel if we are to live righteously before God. And so we're different then because we're loved by God. And being different means we do have different desires of a new heart that God has given us, and we have a different code of honor, which He instructs us through His Word, which takes us to the final 
thing we see here, the final takeaway, and that is this, is that God makes us his people. He makes us to be different, to have these different desires, to have a different code of honor so that we might make a difference in the lives of others. God makes you different through the gospel in order to make a difference in the lives of others who also need that gospel. Peter says here that the Gentiles will speak against you as evildoers. It's going to happen. And by Gentiles, as we've said, he isn't talking about one's ethnicity, but he's talking about unbelievers, those who reject the gospel. Gentile is synonymous for pagan. It means those who do not worship God as he has revealed himself to be in the Bible, but they worship a different God, a gods of their own making. And it is often the case that those who are not believers do speak of Christians as God's people, as evil doers, as being on the wrong side of history, doing harmful things and hateful things, being the enemies of progress, bringing mental harm to others, those who are bigoted and hateful. Now we know that the church in history definitely has caused harm at times, but that's not because of the institution itself was evil. It is because sinners do evil things and will even try to corrupt God's good institutions for their sinful purposes and harm others. But what Peter is speaking of here is actual slander. These believers in this region were doing no evil They were simply trying to live their lives peaceably before all so that they might worship God. And yet for that, they are falsely accused of doing horrible and evil things. And it is well documented in the history of the world, the ill treatment of first century believers in the first century church at the hands of the Roman society. And Tacitus, he, he, in his writings, paints the church as being a dangerous superstition. As well as Suetonius, another Roman writer, calling the church and Christians as uh, followers of a mischievous superstition. That's how they thought of believers, of doers of mischief, those who were dangerous. The church was detested. Christians discriminated against in the marketplace, academia, and the civil government. But Peter's readers, of course, those to whom he wrote, they weren't doing anything evil at all. They were simply trying to live their lives for the glory of God. And for that, they are accused of these horrible things. You see, Christians in the first century, they did not conform to the civic religion of the day. They didn't follow the pagan customs and practices. And for that, they are accused as being the uncultured haters of humanity. They are painted as insurrectionists looking to tear down the power of Rome. And none of that, of course, was true. Christians did live Of course, for a different king whose name was Jesus, but his kingdom was not one of violence and insurrection. Peter's readers, after all, were looking for a living hope, just like Abraham and Moses and David. They were looking for that city whose builder and maker was God. 
So they were not trying to establish a, a physical Christian state on this earth. They weren't trying to build some sort of Christian utopia in the world. They understood that all of this is just temporary. That they were building a different kind of kingdom. The kingdom of God. And by living honorably before the unbelieving pagans, the lives of the believers were to be a proof that the slanderers were wrong. Another way to take Peter's exhortation here is to to give the unbelieving world no grounds for their false accusations because they're going to say these things about you. So don't give them grounds for that to be true. Live in a way that proves you are God's beloved. And as a result, Peter says, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. And he's talking about the day when God comes again. Christ's first coming was spoken of as the day of God's visitation. Here then, he has in view the second advent when Christ comes once again to judge the world in righteousness. And the implication then seems to be that as the unbelieving world sees that honorable life, that these who once discriminated and mocked and persecuted and slandered God's people would come to faith and become one of God's people by means of that honorable conduct being lived before them. In other words, your life as a believer, when lived for the glory of God by following the truth of His Word, preaches the Gospel to the world. Now, it is not the only means that God uses to bring sinners to faith. We are to proclaim His Word. But God does use our lives to bring conviction upon this world. In fact, that is one reason they don't like us. You see, when we are convicted, either two things happen. Either a person accepts it and they come before Christ in faith and repentance, or they suppress it and they reject it and their hearts are hardened. And if it is your life honoring God that brings that conviction... For some, they will be hardened against you as they are hardened against God's grace. But either way, God is glorified. And Peter's point simply is this, is that when you are slandered then, when the the hostility of society turns against you because of your faith in Christ, don't respond as an unbeliever, but as an honorable citizen of Christ's kingdom. Because... When you live honorably, you honor your God. You honor Christ as King. And so let us then, even when we feel the uncomfortable winds of culture and society blow against the church, let us not respond in anger or frustration or fear, but let us live honorably as we are called to, to live honorable lives that honor God. You see, we don't change the world through revolutions or warfare or even politics. We change the world as God's people by doing those simple little 
ordinary things He has called us to that bring glory to Him by loving our neighbors and living according to the truth God has revealed. And God will be glorified in that. He will build His kingdom despite what the unbelieving world tries to do and to say to stop it. So live honorably for your God and He will be glorified in it. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word and we are thankful for this exhortation to come into this world that so often does not appreciate the truth of the gospel and the goodness of your word, but instead responds in anger and hatred towards your people. Nevertheless, Father, we're thankful that we are your people because you have loved us. And so we ask then that we would show that love to the world by walking before them in a way that gives them no grounds for their accusations, but that through it you might work and show them the truth. That to be known by you is the greatest blessing of all. And so we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.